Robin. Good morning. Was that me that did that? Or was that some thunder? Give us rain, Lord. Oh my goodness, do we need some rain. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This morning we will be looking at verses 22 to 29. Last Sunday we looked at the ecumenical council um, meeting in verses 6 to 21. I know that text isn't recognized historically as an ecumenical council. We have like seven of them that kind of happened after this point in the church's history, and those are kind of recognized as the ancient ones and what have you. But I think this was an ecumenical council because basically the whole church and its leadership sort of came together to discuss a matter. And so we'll be referring to it as an ecumenical meeting on and off through 6, six through 21 in 15 is what we looked at. We looked at the meeting and how they came together. Paul and Barnabas, and just to thread the needle a little bit before we get into our next text, Paul and Barnabas, the apostles and elders assembled together in Jerusalem to discuss the salvation of Gentile or non-Jewish people. Some believe that Gentiles were required to be circumcised. The council debated these things. Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James all rose up and testified that salvation is a grace and faith thing alone. That God did not require for Gentiles to be circumcised. But when the council made its final ruling, something perplexing happened. Kind of left you on the edge last week. That was fun all week, knowing that you were tortured. James, a perplexing thing that took place was James instructed the council to communicate to the Gentile people, these Gentile converts up north, that they were not required to be circumcised, to some degree he says that there, but that they should abstain from four things. Remember what they are. Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, and blood. The question I left you with last Sunday was, did James clear the Gentiles of circumcision and then commend that they abstain from four new things? Did James replace circumcision with four things? Did James redefine, and really it was the council, but it was him as kind of the spokesperson... Did James, the council, redefine salvation? Is salvation by grace through faith in Christ plus abstaining from four things? I answered these questions with a definitive no, but left out the details. We ran out of time and I ran out of sermon. So this morning we're going to begin to study the ecumenical letter... This is the letter that the Ecumenical Council wrote to send to these Gentiles. We're going to study this thing in detail so that we can understand what James and or the council meant, as well as some other things that are in the text. Before picking up at verse 22a, I'd like to pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us illumination... We may have the Holy Spirit, those who are in you, Jesus Christ, but there is such a strong tendency in our flesh just to be dull. 
mostly distracted, filled with the cares of our lives and our jobs and our marriages and our culture and our community and politics and, and all of these things. Not that these things are, are bad things, Lord. This isn't the time to be thinking about those things. Give us mercy. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the truth, Lord. But as Aaron said, we might not only be hearers, but doers. That is what is required. That is what you have empowered your church to be, to do. Make it happen today, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you. We humble ourselves, Lord. Teach us from your word today. We came in as this person. May we leave as not just that person, but as a version of that person that has changed and transformed, that might glorify you more, that might love you more, that might serve you more. Father, that's what we pray for. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 22A. Are you there? If you're there, say I'm there. All right. 22A. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. We're speaking of Syrian Antioch. With Paul and Barnabas. That's the first thing we read in the text. Your version might be a little different. Uh, depending on what translation you use, I'm teaching from the ESV. We learned last week that the apostles and elders separated themselves from the rest of the church to debate. The rest of the congregation that was gathered there to uh, debate if it was necessary for Gentiles or Gentile believers to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And yet we see here in our text that after they reached their conclusion, they returned to the larger group to give their ruling and then to choose from among them men to accompany Paul and Barnabas uh, in their return to Syrian Antioch. Kind of the first thing that we notice. Now why did the apostles' elders in Jerusalem church select men to go with Paul and Barnabas? Were Paul and Barnabas not capable of delivering this very monumentally important letter to these people that they'd been ministering to up in these uh, Greek Roman provinces? Were they not capable of doing such a thing themselves? Did, did they not have the, the capability of something of that nature? Absolutely not. Here are some potential reasons why they selected men to send with them. And I think it'll become clear as we keep going, but I would say number one would be to communicate the ecumenical council's ruling by direct apostolic authority. This is not to take anything away from Paul and Barnabas. They had been sent by the elders and, and apostles in Jerusalem to go out and, and basically to go up and plant churches in these areas. They'd been sent through Syrian, this church at Syrian Antioch to do the same thing. And so that's not to say that they didn't have some level of authority. They had total authority. But I think that one of the reasons why the council sent these extra men, picked them and sent them, was just to, just to communicate uh, with a group that was directly from the ecumenical council, directly from the church at Jerusalem, to help communicate with that apostolic authority, to make sure that the Gentiles would absolutely receive it in the right light. Okay, Paul and Barnabas have been up here ministering to us for a couple of years now on and off. We love them. We, 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 we believe what they 
teaching us. They've been preaching the gospel. God has done amazing things. They've done signs and wonders to affirm their, their authority. And then so the idea is here that we would send. They would send some other guys up there with that apostolic authority right directly from that church. Two would be to establish, to help establish doctrinal unity in the whole church. Okay, I do not believe that the Jewish branches of the Christian church at this point were wrestling with, you know, I think they were probably wrestling with it to some degree, the circumcision idea, but they seem to be pretty fixed on the matter that it's a grace and faith thing. This sort of debate and problem arose amongst Gentiles. It was actually Jewish converts or Jewish false teachers, Judaizers, who came in and began to propagate this lie of salvation plus works. But I think that what we see here is they're picking guys and they're sending guys to help establish doctrinal unity in the whole church. You've got, you know, you've got people that, that gather in Jerusalem. You've got people that gather up in Syrian Antioch. You've got people that gather throughout Galatia. It's one church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And you have many different threads and strands of it. And what the apostles wanted to do from the Jerusalem base is establish authority... We don't want a whole bunch of like bishop kind of action going on or anything like that. It's one church. You have some apostles. You have some leadership. And we have fixed doctrine. And so they wanted to help establish that doctrinal unity. Again, too, another thing would be to put down the Judaizers and their heresy. Paul and Barnabas had done that marvelously by proclaiming the gospel and by refuting them. You know, vociferously they argued for the sake of the gospel, the true gospel against these false teachers. And, and so to some degree here, Jerusalem's sending their own little delegation up there to, to do the same thing, to refute these men and their errors. Another thing would be to extend the hand of fellowship and acceptance from Jewish believers to Gentile believers. To extend the hand of fellowship. Man, you're a part of the church, Gentile people. We love you. And we want to extend the fellowship, the hand of fellowship to you. We want you to know that you're a part of this thing. We know you're different, but you're a part of this thing. And then lastly, it would be to affirm the gospel ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Okay, the Judaizers came in and interrupted the preaching of Paul and Barnabas who were preaching the true gospel, salvation by, you know, through grace, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, uh, you know, to the glory of God alone. You think of the five solas. That's what they'd been preaching, but these guys came in and, and disrupted that and, 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 and tried to make it look like Paul and Barnabas didn't know what the heck they were doing. Oh, well, they're teaching you something and it's good, but it's not as good as what we got. Our version includes circumcision. It is way more whole. It's way more full. And so these men came up with Paul and Barnabas to help affirm they're preaching the truth. They're not. They are. And so I think those are some pretty legitimate reasons why they picked some guys and sent them up there. It makes sense, right? It'll become clear as we go. The question becomes then who did they select and send? Who were the men? Look at verse 22b to 23a. It says, they sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men of the brothers, or among the brothers, with the following letter. The church chose two guys, Judas and Silas. Who were these guys? 
the text says something very important. It says that they were leading men among the brothers. What does it mean to be a leading man here? Well, most men in the church today just kind of go with the flow. They attend the assembly here and there and make an occasional donation. And sadly, that's pretty much it. Leading men, on the other hand, let's juxtapose leading men. Leading men, on the other hand, stand out amongst the masses, amongst the brethren, amongst the congregation. They not only attend the assembly regularly, but they use their gifts and talents to serve the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. They give generously of their treasure to help meet the needs of the church. They engage in theological dialogue, discussion, debate, and declaration. They raise their families in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. They love their wives as Christ loves the church. They love their children and they, and they prepare their children for the world. They love their neighbors. They are strong but tender. They are firm but gracious. They are bold but merciful. Ultimately, a leading man sets an example for others. His attitude, character, integrity, and deeds will actually capture the attention of others. People will say of him, he is a godly man. He is a good man. He is a faithful man. He is a generous man. He is a kind man. He's a firm man. He doesn't waver. Other men will take notice of him and even say, I'd like to be like this man. God, take me and fashion me and form me to become more like this man, the Apostle Paul, what have you. This is what it means to be a leading man among the brothers. Question. Men, is this who you are? The two mentioned in our text are Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Nothing more is known of Judas called Barsabbas. Some think that he might have been related to Joseph Barsabbas who is mentioned in Acts 1.23. But we don't know for sure. Silas, however, these two leading men. Silas, however, played a prominent role in New Testament history. Silas was sometimes referred to as Silvanus. We see this in 2 Corinthians and in the Thessalonian letters. Silas accompanied Paul during his second missionary journey. We see this in the latter part of Acts 15 and in Acts 16, 17, and 18. He later served as the apostle Peter's scribe for Peter's first epistle. Both... Judas and Silas had proven themselves and earned a, a good, a good godly reputation amongst 
the leaders and brethren. And this is why they were selected and sent. Coming back to you. Men, would the elders and congregation of your church select and send you for such a mission? Why or why not? You need to understand something very important. Every Christian man in this room should be selectable for such a mission because the Bible makes it clear that every Christian man is to be a leading man. It is true that in the scriptures we see some men who stick out more than others and so on. But that doesn't mean that only those who stick out have been called to lead. Every Christian man is called to lead. If we evaluate ourselves and find that we wouldn't make the cut for such a mission to deliver this letter with Paul and Barnabas, we most certainly should not settle and seek to justify ourselves. Don't say to yourself, men, my work schedule prohibits me from becoming a leading man in the church. Don't say that. My finances prohibit me from becoming a leading man in the church. Don't say that, men. My limited time prohibits me from becoming a leading man in the church. My limited talent prohibits me from becoming a leading man in the church. Don't say these things. See, when we hear this radical call to step out and to become a leading man in our jobs, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, what we do is say, well, I just don't have enough of this to do it. I don't have enough of that to do it. Bull. Let me encourage you. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you right now, I could preach this with a mirror in front of my face without anyone else in this room. It's as if Nathan's saying, don't forget about you, you're the man, Phil. Let me encourage you, let me encourage me, let me encourage us. Your job was not given to you for the purpose of consuming all your time, all your talent, all your attention, all your passion, all your energy. No. Your job was not given to you for the purpose of consuming you. On the contrary, God gave you your job for the purpose of glorifying him. And he is glorified when we work hard when we exhibit godly character and godly integrity and, and, and give back to God from the, the first fruits of our earnings and provide for our families and, and care for our neighbors. Our jobs were given that we might make much of Jesus, not ourselves. Should a man pour himself into his work... Absolutely, but he should never, ever empty himself into his work. Never. Your
career, men and women, especially men, should never get it all. If your work schedule hinders you from becoming a leading man at home and in the church, you must reevaluate your priorities. You might even have to renegotiate your schedule. You might even have to find another job, men. If your employer won't work with you, don't work with your employer. Is he telling us that we might have to get a different job? You're darn skippy. If your job takes everything and you don't have anything left for your kids and anything left for your wife and anything left for your church family, that job is an idol. I don't care where you work. I don't care if you're an attorney, a doctor. I don't care if you flip burgers. I don't know many people that pour everything into that. I worked at Long John's. I did not pour much of anything into that place. <laughs> Do you understand the point here? Your job should not get it all. And how many men that I've met and even fallen into this myself where you just pour everything you have and you don't have anything left for anyone else? We need to be very mindful of something here. Every believer will have to give an account before the Lord for how they use their time, talent, and treasure for the cause of Christ and his church. This is serious stuff. Are we to believe that we will be able to persuade or pacify the Lord Jesus on that great day by saying things like, Lord, I didn't have enough time to teach my kids to fear and love you. Lord, I didn't have enough time to prepare my kids for the world. Lord, I didn't have enough time to love my wife as you love the church. Lord, I didn't, I, I didn't have enough time to really be the priest of my home. Lord, I didn't have the time to attend the Sunday assembly consistently. I was a once-a-month guy because of that job. Lord, I didn't have time to build up other believers by using my talents. Lord, I didn't have any extra money to give to your cause. Lord, I couldn't become a leading man because my job consumed me. Do you think that garbage is going to fly with him? Well, I, that's the problem I keep hearing from everyone else who keeps standing before me. Go ahead. Go take your mansion. Or however it plays out. I'm simply saying this, men. It's time for us to become leading men among the brothers. Like Judas and Silas. Or better yet, like Jesus. Because he's the one that we should be coming like more than anyone else. In my opinion, which usually doesn't amount to a hill of beans... My wife makes that clear at times. There has never been a greater time for this to take place in the church than today. The church has plenty of men in it, but it has very few leading men in it. Oh, it's filled with guys. 
but the percentage of those who actually take the lead in their homes, in their churches, in their communities is so minuscule compared to the broad number of dudes that are in the church. What has happened to us? What are we doing? Brothers, maybe today can be that turning point day where we repent of our error in these things and align ourselves with the will of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. May we all become leading men among the brothers. Lord, make it so. Now, after being selected by the church. Judas, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas were given a very special document for delivery. It is known as the ecumenical letter. That's what I've been calling it. The ecumenical letter included the council's ruling on circumcision and salvation. It covers verses 23b to 29. I have divided the letter into three parts, which will hopefully make it easier to teach through and for you to understand. The three Parts will be as follows. Number one, the confirmation, verse 23b. Number two, the clarification, verses 24 to 27. And verse three, the consultation, verses 28 to 29, the three C's. Us pastors do this, forgive me. We always come up with the six C's, the 12 nines, whatever. That made no sense. (laughs) This is what happens when you ad lib. You go off script, you say dumb things. And sometimes you say dumb things when you go to the script. All right, let's begin with number one. The confirmation. Verse 23b, it says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. The first thing we notice in the letter is a confirmation of who the Gentile believers are. The apostles and elders address them as what? Brothers. Brothers is Adelphos in Greek. We think of the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Adelphos in Greek, and it generally generally means Christian brothers. This is huge. The leaders in Jerusalem wanted the non-circumcised Gentile believers to know without a doubt that they are accepted, that they accepted them as members of the brotherhood and church of Christ. They addressed them as brothers. It's as if they said in a, in a loud, clear way by saying, brothers, we accept you just as you are as men of faith. If circumcision was required for the Gentiles to receive salvation and inclusion in the covenant community of God and the brotherhood of the saints, the verse would read, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the Gentiles who need to be circumcised in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. That's what it would say. But that's not what the verse says, does it? They are called brothers because they too had been made part of the brotherhood of the saints. The covenant body through faith. The Jerusalem leaders began by confirming, the ecumenical council began by confirming the Gentile believers. 
They wanted to set their hearts at ease by saying, you are accepted by us. You are our brothers. You are justified, in a sense. They say this, you are justified before God by faith alone. This had to bring tremendous comfort to the churches that had been infiltrated and attacked by the Judaizers. The Judaizers used circumcision to divide and exclude people from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus and to condemn Gentiles. But the apostles and elders of, you know, back in Jerusalem struck a death blow to their heretical message by confirming the Gentiles just by simply calling them brothers. Great joy must have come over the churches when 23b was read aloud or when the letter was read aloud, especially this part. Now look at number two, the clarification. 24 to 27. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. The apostles and elders were made aware of the dubious lie and deceitful plot of the Judaizers. When the Judaizers came to the church at Syrian Antioch, they claimed to have been sent from the church at Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, well, who are you guys? Well, we just we were sent out by the apostles and elders down there in Jerusalem to come up here and make sure you understand the gospel. You guys got to get circumcised. They claimed to have been sent out from the apostles and elders. They made it sound like they had been chosen and sent as a special delegation of representatives from the main hub. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 11:14, which says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is how the devil and his servants, minions, like to work. They like to pose as Christian leaders and, and preach a little truth and, and add in a little leaven, a little error, and then lead people into heresy and down destructive paths. The Judaizers did this. They disguised themselves as representatives of the church in Jerusalem and then gained access and then began to perpetuate their heresy. But thankfully, Paul and Barnabas were there to stop them. In verse 24, the apostles and elders wanted to make something absolutely clear, and that was that they had nothing to do with the Judaizers. They wrote, in effect, they did not come out from us, and they were given no instructions from us. They weren't a part of our group. They went and did their own thing. They go on to say that they selected and sent Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas, to send them along with Paul and Barnabas for the purpose of personally communicating what was written in the letter. That they had nothing to do with the Judaizers. That they weren't to be burdened with circumcision. This again is a critical strike against circumcision and salvation. The leaders in Jerusalem rejected the Judaizers as being sent out from them 
and simultaneously rejected their message, salvation by circumcision. If you reject the messenger, you also reject their message. That's what the apostles did here. Now let's look at number three. The consultation, verses 28 to 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now this is part uh, that we got hung up on last Sunday, right? It's like, man, he's going to just stop with saying, don't worry about circumcision, you're good, we love you. No, they added these other things. The apostles and elders pretty much annihilated the idea of circumcision and salvation. We really discovered that uh, last week and, and even in greater detail today just through that salutation of calling them brothers. It really is there. It's impacted into that. But here we read about four new requirements. <laughs> you don't have to do that, but you need to do these things. It would almost seem that the leaders ditched circumcision and then replaced it with four new things. And let me tell you, throughout the centuries, Christians have misunderstood this like you can't believe and have gone down and done whatever they could to secure for them salvation by being obedient to these texts. They do, because they don't understand what it means. Well, that's not at all what the apostles and elders meant through the ecumenical letter. They did not say, ditch circumcision and replace it with four new things. To properly understand, and understand the council's request, and what they're asking for, we must understand the context and their motivation. Okay? I will try to illustrate these things through another three examples. I hate to flood you with points, but it's like I could not figure out how else to narrate this thing without breaking it down into sections. It used to drive me crazy at the churches I used to go to. They'd give like, you know, 84 points. You know, I have no idea where we're at. Well, I'm giving you 96 today, so. I just think it'll be easier to illustrate what they mean here in their heart through three simple things. Hey, we got to understand this right from the get-go. Okay, this was not a salvation issue. We're not dealing with salvation here. Okay, Paul and Barnabas and the, and the council have already, they've already made it clear that salvation is a grace through faith thing, period. Okay? The matter is settled. That is the ruling. Okay? Everything that we've read and studied up to this point has made that pretty darn clear. And so you need to guard yourself when you go out and read passages like James 2.17. And he says faith without works is dead. Don't think that you've got to add works to your faith to be, have a live faith. Faith produces works. What people do is they see this and they think, oh man, it's wrong everywhere. So now we've got to redefine salvation. And we know that we've got to go get circumcised. We know we've got to get baptized. We know we've got to do... No, the matter is settled already. This is not a salvation issue. Okay, so just settle that in your minds right now. Salvation is 
through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's not something you conjure up. It's not something that you make yourself do. You don't have faith if you're not in Christ. You're dead. Settle that. Whenever you read something that's difficult, we're challenged to do something. There's some imperatives and things. Know that the imperatives are always guided and empowered by true saving faith. Always know that. If Paul says do this, the reason why you can is because you're saved, not so you can get yourself saved. So let's just settle that right here, okay? Amen? Are we good? You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do. It's a God thing. It's a miracle. So this is not a salvation issue, Paul and Barnabas. And the council have already made that clear. It is settled. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Circumcision and abstaining from the other four things in the text plays no part in the salvation of a person. Period. So that's done. B. (coughs) The requirements, the things to abstain from, The four things were given in the form of good, godly advice rather than law. Understand that. This is huge. This is made clear in verse, really through the whole letter, but in particular verse 29 where the council said, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. This is not an explicit command in this text. It is good, godly advice. And don't misunderstand me, family and friends, church. I'm not working to undermine the severity of things like sexual immorality by by making this point. So don't misunderstand me, please. The fact is, those who engage in sexual immorality generally do not do well. Why? Because A, it's against the law of God, and B, it's totally destructive. So don't think, well, he's opening it up. I can do whatever I want. No. I'm simply trying to convey and help you understand the heart and attitude of the council here. The council was not interested in nailing the Gentile believers to the law of Moses. The Judaizers had already tried to do that. The council was interested in consulting the Gentiles to turn away from things that promote disappointment. Because sexual immorality does nothing but perpetuate disappointment, despair, and these kinds of things. Amen? These things don't bear fruit in your life. They might satisfy your flesh for a moment, but man, do they come with baggage. They were trying to convey, they were trying to communicate, stay away from these sorts of things that, that, that breed dissatisfaction that breed, you know, these sorts of things here. They were trying to lead them away from and steer them away from things that promote disappointment, destruction, and hugely in the church, disunity. Now, the council may have laid the groundwork here. For Paul's most excellent section on Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 33. I, I had it read to you earlier. We read it together. In that passage, Paul points out that grace gives a believer liberty, liberty to engage in all things. 
In other words, you can't sin your way out of God's grace. Anything is, is permissible. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. But, even though you may have liberty to engage in anything, so much of what's out there is not beneficial. His big point was that we should not use our liberty to engage in things that might lead other brothers and sisters to stumble. Paul even used meat sacrifice to idols as an example. The Christian can eat that stuff all they want. Okay? You've got the liberty to eat what is put before you. Meat sacrifice to an idol means nothing to a mature believer. Guess what meat sacrifice to an idol is to a mature believer? It's meat. It tastes good. Especially with a little, you know, rosemary, a little garlic. Nothing better than a good roast, pork roast. Now, keep in mind that there might be other believers present that do not understand their liberty and your partaking of these things jacks them all up. A better example for us would be beer and wine. I love craft beer. But when I engage in craft beer to the glory of God, I need to be mindful that there might be some, a lesser brother or sister in, in, in the midst that might say, oh my gosh, he's drinking! I need to disciple that person and find out, do you not understand your liberty? Or is it really, you're just really concerned? What, I need to be sensitive to these people. There are some out there that, that, you know, you might eat a certain thing, I guess, and I think it's kind of an old school example, but that they would think that you eating that particular thing, Paul's point, it, it would be sin. If that's the case in whatever it is that you partake in, especially in food, the mature believer should get a lamb kebab instead of a pulled pork sandwich. You, you don't cause at the expense... At the, at, the, at the, you know, utilization of your liberty, you don't do it at the expense of other lesser brothers and sisters who don't understand their liberty. I'll never forget the first thing I did when I got saved. I threw away about 200 DVDs and CDs. I just cleared out. It was just like, none of this stuff belongs in my house. This, is, this house is devoted. There was nothing to do with that. There was nothing wrong with that. There were others that came along that were more mature in the faith that I can watch this movie. No, you can't. Don't do it. I just didn't understand my liberty. And quite honestly, why would I have even wanted to watch some of those things? You know, some of them just aren't beneficial at all, right? Shoot them up, bang, bang, that's kind of cool, but there's other things in movies, ugh. I, I experienced this to some degree. In, in a way, this is the advice of the council. This is part of their good, godly advice to these Gentile believers in the letter. And this will begin to make more sense as we continue. C, this is where it will really begin to come to light. C, the requirements were given for the purpose of promoting peace in the congregations. Okay? The requirements were given for the purpose of promoting peace in the congregations. Each of the four things, I've got to give you a little background though so we can get to it. Each of the four things mentioned to abstain from were parts of the law of Moses. Sacrificed to idols is really a reference to 
the meat that was offered by Gentiles to Gentile gods. That's what he talked about. Don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols. That's a reference to meat that was sacrificed or offered to, by Gentiles to Gentile gods. Gentiles would gather at the altar or at the feet of their idols and, and place a slab of meat you know, at the altar or at the feet. And they would just sort of leave it there as an offering to, to this false god, to this idol, to this statue. Here, here, here's a, here, here's, a, here's some, uh, some pork chops. I love you. Take them. They just sit there and, you know. Later, a Gentile priest, a pagan priest, would come by and he'd pick up the meat. <laughs> hey, there's some, that's good meat right there. That's grade A. That's USDA choice. He'd come by and pick it up, and then what would he do? He would deliver it to the meat markets, the Gentile meat markets, and he would sell it and make a few bucks. They had quite a racket going. They did. This is what they'd do. I love you. You know, and they put it down, and then, you know, they walk away, and the priest is like, look, he ate it, you know, and then he'd, he'd, go, he'd go sell it. He'd be like, I love my religion. It is a word of faith thing. I just keep getting richer. Look at this. Had to throw that in there for no apparent reason. But, but that's what they would do, you know. They would deliver it to the market and they would sell it as food. And this was a money-making racket. And yet it was forbidden for Jews to have anything to do with this process. Have anything to do with the meat. They were not allowed to enter Gentile shrines, really Gentile territory to some degree, to the highest degree. They were not... In, you know, authorized or able to enter into these shrines or these places of Gentile worship. They were not authorized. They could not. It was forbidden for them to go into these butcher shops and buy the meat. They were not allowed to touch the meat or eat the meat. God decreed this because he desired, obviously, back in the Old Testament, he desired for his people, the Jewish people, to be different and set apart from the Gentiles who were absolutely out of their minds. Don't eat the same things. Don't dress like them. Look different. That's just like the most abbreviated way of the Mosaic law I could do. The Jews were not permitted to drink or consume the blood of animals. The blood of the animals that they offered as sacrifice or slaughtered for food. Blood was forbidden. Meat sacrificed to idols, totally forbidden. And pork products and all that, and shellfish too. Gentiles were not allowed to have anything to do with the blood. You couldn't drink, eat the blood. Gentiles, however, did all sorts of goofy things with the blood. One thing that I can totally resonate with them is that they really loved their steaks rare with the hooves still on with the tail wagon. They liked their meat like that. If you keep eating that, I'll be glad to do your funeral. Because that's what's coming. But Gentiles, man, they would eat these things and eat these things. But Jews, however, uh-uh-uh-uh. They were required to drain the blood from the animals before using them. God decreed this because he desired for his people, the Jews, to be different and set apart from the Gentiles. The Gentiles liked to strangle their animals rather than slice the throat. Why? So they could keep the blood and the juice and the flavor in the animal. Okay? The Jews were not permitted to strangle because blood was off limits. They would slice the animal's throat and bleed it out. They did this before sacrifices and in the marketplace. I'm just giving you a context for these go with what we're talking about. Sexual immorality. What is it? 
It's a general term which covers a long list of sexual sins. It would include adultery, cheating on your wife, cheating on your husband, fornication, sex outside of marriage. It would include homosexuality, and boy, the people are working feverishly to reverse that, even in the church, which I, I can't figure out. Homosexuality, bestiality, some of these things are just, whoa, really? Pedophilia, pornography, incest, prostitution. I mean, it's a long list. There's more. Anything to do with sex that's done in a way that does not glorify God, basically. Now, many of these things, these sexually immoral things, were completely permissible in Roman culture amongst Gentiles. These sexual practices were very common and thought of as normative by Gentiles. Jews, however, were raised from birth to flee from sexual immorality. The law of Moses forbid it and threatened any who broke the law with penalties as extreme as death. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals were usually put to death. Now, begin to thread all this stuff together. Thread it all together here. Let's see if we can do this. Jews were not permitted to eat food sacrificed to idols, blood, or strangled stuff, or to engage in sexual immorality. Jews were raised from birth to avoid these things. Gentiles ate all this stuff, and blood and sexual immorality was normative. Gentiles were raised from birth to accept and engage in these things. It was normal for them. For one group, totally abnormal, crazy, sinful, stay away from it, run for the hills. The other group, what's wrong with you? This stuff feels good, it tastes good. This is what we're supposed to do. Both groups raised, one to avoid, one to engage. And I, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. It is true that the Gentiles that we have been talking about all this time had been given new life. They were truly saved. We've read that in the text. They had the Holy Spirit. And, and we have no doubt they had that new disposition, that new attitude and heart, love for God, obedience to God, holiness and righteousness. That is the heart of a real believer. But, you think about this. You got Jews on one side, you got Gentiles on the other. For some, all these things, all their life they've done. The others, they've stayed away from all of them. Now, just think about this for a moment. Put them all under the same roof and into the same fellowship. What's going to happen? Even a new Gentile believer is still going to be clinging to some of that old stupid stuff. It happens. Sanctification is a process. There's a process of being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. And that is the shedding of the things that do not represent Christ. You, you got to know, man, Gentiles in an unprecedented way were flooding into the church. God was saving them by the multitudes and they were coming in. And guess what? As they came in, a lot of that baggage came in with them. And he had a high Jewish presence in most of these churches, if not fully Jewish, Hellenistic. And what happened was you got all these Gentiles coming in and they're still doing some of these things. You got the Jews going, oh my gosh. Boom, explosion. The Gentiles may have been new, but some of the old things carried over. It was the same with the Jews in terms of legalism. All those old patterns and things have been layered on the law of God and the word of God. The pharisaical kind of angle and things, additional things. They were dealing with those extra things. Gentiles were dealing with just stuff they'd been raised to do. 
you have both groups. <laughs> you have both groups who are being changed by the good grace of God, but the residue of worldly living is still there to a degree. Now take both groups, as I said, and put them under the same fellowship and roof. Can you imagine the dynamics? Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine the finger pointing? Can you imagine the disunity? And one of the primary reasons why the council instructed the Gentiles to make a consorted effort to leave behind their own practices was to promote peace amongst the brethren. Because if they continued to engage in things that were forbidden to Jews, there would be no peace in these churches. Amen? You think about this. When unbelievers come into the church, they bring all sorts of baggage with them. All people do, but think of unbelievers. When they get saved, if God saves them, they still have baggage. They begin to sort through that baggage and deal with it in light of the truth. That's a process we're all in, some more mature than others. Some further down the road, our trajectory is a little farther. And sometimes this baggage of, of new believers is, is, is just so clearly seen by others, Right? You spend time with a new believer, you hear them say things that do not square with the truth. And you, and you might see them do things that do not square with the truth. And when this happens, more mature believers will say things like, they'll try to encourage them, right? They'll say, what you're doing can be very destructive. What you're doing can be very divisive. What you're doing has the potential to turn your world upside down and ruin the peace in your home, ruin the peace in your life, ruin the peace at the church. You will do well to avoid these things. You understand? You think about, again, think about how the Gentiles were being saved and flooding into the churches at this time. God was doing an amazing, unprecedented work in Cyprus, Galatia, Pamphylia, all throughout the world there. When the Gentiles came in, they brought that baggage with them, began to deal with it, but so much of it was so visible. And some of them kept clinging to some of those old patterns and, and habits and things more so than they should have. But God was, had saved them and sanctified them, and they were changing. But man, to the Jews, they just watched them engage in all these things they had no business doing. And what disunity and peace did that break? I mean, it just must have been incredible. It makes total sense that the more mature, more mature believers, and in, in our text it would be the council, would welcome these Gentiles and warn them in love. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. I'm slowly becoming more and more convinced that the primary, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the, the primary purpose behind so much of Paul's exhortation to the church throughout his epistles, you know, to put away sinful things or dividing things was for the purpose of keeping peace. Well, is he calling people to live holy lives? Absolutely. But so much of it had to do with keeping the peace. In Ephesians 4, 1 to 15, he wrote, and I'm just, I broke it down and paraphrased it and just kind of took bits and pieces here. He basically said this, take off the things you once wore. Remove the garments of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he said this. Take those things off, man. And he said, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love, which binds all things together in perfect harmony. He said this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. How might we translate that? 
fancy, beautiful little text. Take off the things that promote disappointment, that promote destruction, that promote disunity. Put on the things that promote love and peace. Big exhortation, big point. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Now, I want you to, as we wrap it up, I want you to consider all of this. Consider the implications of, of, of their letter and the heart behind it and the direction they were trying to lead them in so that they could have peace in these things, so they could be what they need to be for Christ. Consider the implications of all of this. If you have a church where its members are divided by sin, how is it going to be effective in its mission? It won't be. Because the people will be too busy trying to manage each other. Completely consumed with one another. I can't believe what's going on in that marriage. I can't. We got an evangelism. I can't do that. I got I to gotta deal with this. I got to do. Oh, you wouldn't even believe what Susie's doing. Oh, everyone's trying to manage everyone and pointing out and fingers and trying to do that. Is there a ministry in that? Yeah. Is there grace in that? Yeah, there can be. And churches are broken places with people like this. Amen. We're all that way. But you just think about this for a moment. How do you stay on mission, working together in peace and unity to bring the gospel out if all you're ever doing is dealing with my issue or this, because I, I, just, I just keep not choosing to live according to the will of God, according to the grace that has been given, too much has been given to me, I, much is required. You just think about that for a moment. The church where its members are divided by sin, these people are doing these things and this is going on over here, how is it going to be effective in mission? It won't be because people are too busy trying to manage each other. How is God glorified in this? Friends, we need to take the advice of the ecumenical council. We need to abstain from things that promote disunity and threaten or even destroy the bonds of peace so that we can stay on mission together and in the fullness of God's joy. Amen? Before communion, ask the Lord if you are harming others by how you exercise your liberty. You cause another weaker brothers and sisters to stumble? Are you causing non-believers to constantly question your faith and, and the church and, and the truth in these things because you're just going along with them and everything that they do because you have the liberty to do so? Maybe you're wrapped up in sexual immorality. Maybe you've been looking at porn. Maybe you've been sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend. No. Maybe you've emptied yourself into your job and that's why you don't obey God's commands to pour yourself into more important things like your family and church family. Maybe you need to chat with your boss and redo your work schedule. Maybe you need to find another job. I don't know. And I just simply encourage you to ask God to search your heart and confess whatever he brings to mind whatever he brings to mind. And know this, redeemed child of God, 
Although your sins may abound, his grace abounds all the more. Know that you are loved. Know that you are forgiven. I'm speaking to believers. Know that God's mercies are new every day and do not run out. Remember the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. He died and shed his blood that you could be brought into his covenant family to enjoy him forever and ever. Remember that we that are in Christ are God's chosen people. We are different from the rest of the world. We don't go along with the rest of the world. We're countercultural in so many ways. We might have liberty, but let's never use it to disgrace Christ and look like the world. Let's use it to glorify God and to disciple others. Know that we are strangers and aliens. Live as such. Amen. Father, we pray that you would (coughs) reveal our sin to us, that we would come to know what it is, what area of sin we are engaged in, Lord, that we would confess, that we would repent and turn from it, that we would know that your blood covers these things. To make those things clear, that we would confess these things so that we could be pure purified before we take the elements. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has yet to come to know you and somehow your gospel has been made clear to them that this is a grace thing. It is a faith thing. It's believing. It's not doing. And through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who changes us and makes us a new creation, we really will have an attitude and a heart that's really against these things that plague us, that destroy us, that your wrath is coming against sexual immorality and so many other things, God. May we know, Lord, that we are freed from the wage of sin because of Jesus Christ, because of what he did. May we take these elements remembering what he did and and most of all knowing that it is a finished work We cannot add to it. It's all in Jesus. He's all we need. He is the Savior of the world. Those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ are made new and given an abundant life and an eternity midst of unspeakable glory, the radiant Father and Creator of all. Oh, how wonderful that will be. Lord, we pray that you would come. You should tarry, Lord. May we serve you well, live confessional open lives before you, proclaim the gospel, and enjoy you and each other. We lift all these things up in the name of Jesus Christ.